The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined this week by the Libra Icon. What's going on, Dwayne? Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm good to be back, as always, for another week. Let's get it. All right, man. Just to let everybody know, you can find Know the Score on CSPN.us. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. We can also be found through any app for iPhone or Android used to download and play podcasts. So, Dwayne, we'll get right into it. Last weekend, NFL Championship Sunday. We'll start off in Foxborough as Tom Brady leads the Patriots back from 10 points down in the fourth quarter to defeat the Jacksonville Jaguars 24-20. Game effort by the Jaguars came down to they just ran out of points and ran out of steam in the fourth quarter, let Brady get too many chances with the football, and uh, Brady cashed in with two touchdowns in the fourth quarter and got the Patriots over the hump. So they're advancing to their eighth Super Bowl uh, in 16 years for Tom Brady. So half of his career, he's played in the Super Bowl. That's quite amazing. Um, so, Dwayne, your thoughts on Jacksonville coming up short and Belichick and Brady pulling out another one? Well, it was pretty much what we expected. You know, the Jaguars were very gay, but you got to get it up to number 12. He did what he does best and. It was a methodical comeback. It was a methodical game. And you just never count out New England, no matter what the odds are, pretty much. You know, they always seem to find a way to get the job done. And their mantra, one of their mantras is, do do your job. And everybody did their job, especially in the second half. And everything the Jaguars were doing in the first three and a half quarters of the game, it just ended up, backfiring on them and like you said they ran out of steam and you know so young team that just needs to you know close out the big game against a very game team they know how to close out games Blake Bortles it seemed like the bigger the stage the better he played and he you know you can't put that on him you can't put that on the defense really it was just the better team showed up in the end and won that was the New England Patriots so you know they do it again, Belichick and Brady, you know, they're a Super Bowl, 10th Super Bowl overall, and, you know, they have a chance to tie Pittsburgh for the most Super Bowl wins all time. Uh, another thing that was significant about this win is Brady did this without Gronk. Gronk got knocked out by Barry Church uh, in the first half, so a lot of this comeback was done without him. It looked to me that uh, he got better without Gronk because, as we talked about in the preview, Jacksonville was kind of double covering Gronk and kind of going one up with everybody else. They even put Jalen Ramsey on him a couple of times uh, early in the first quarter, first half, and uh, it resulted in a sack by Dante Fowler that Tony Romo pointed out nice. Where they, you know, uh, Brady thought he was going to get one coverage, and then he looks at Gronk and he finds out, oh no, it's double coverage. And, you know, Fowler gets in for a sack. So with Grunt getting knocked out, it kind of, you know, made Brady have to use all of his guys. And I think that kind of changed up Jacksonville the way that they also changed their coverage. They never changed their coverage. Instead of just going man to man and saying these guys can't beat us, they stayed in their defense. And Brady eventually picked them apart because you have to keep scoring the ball or at least getting first downs if you get the lead against New England. You can't just get to a certain point where you're just going to be like, oh, I'm going to rely on my defense 
because Brady will eventually get to you. And that's what exactly happened. No matter how good your passing defense is, if you give Brady five chances, six chances with the ball in one quarter, he's going to put two of them in the end zone. And, uh, that just became befell Jacksonville this time, but they'll be back. You know, they've got some questions to answer at quarterback. Um, if they, you know, bring Bortles back, if they try to go after somebody, that's an upgrade in most people's minds. Um, you know, they definitely have all the ingredients right now, except for a quarterback to make a serious run at the Super Bowl. So I think a lot of people gained a lot of respect and, and gained a newfound um, fear for Jacksonville and what they could be if they get, you know, an upgraded quarterback. Yeah, and also to say this, you know, you know, Bortles was a bunch of a line most of the season, but we also got to realize he did this without most of his top two receivers all season long. I mean, Alan Hearns was back, but he wasn't the Alan Hearns we saw last year or at the first part of the season. He didn't have Alan Robinson at all. And like I said, you know, the bigger the stage, the better he got, but – it is going to be interesting to see if they do an upgrade, like you said. But I don't think they should, to be honest. I think, you know, he proves as, you know, as a bigger the stage came along with, you know, secondary guys and your veteran tight end and Mercedes Lewis. And they actually were pretty reliable on offense. So you just got to really tip your cap to – Bortles to for what he did with what he had and you know even though he's much maligned you know he did what he had to do with what he had so I give him credit for that all right so we'll shift the scene over to Philadelphia as the Eagles dismantled the Vikings 38 to 7 behind the career day for Nick Foles he was out of his mind. Uh, they, you know, unleashed the chains on him, basically. Um, he'd kind of been dinking and dunking the past few weeks, um, you know, completing passes but not really pushing the ball down the field. Well, that was totally different in this game. They really attacked the Vikings. Um, they didn't show him a lot of respect and a lot of fear. And 38-7 uh, to 7 resulted. Uh, the game really changed on a pick six by Case Keenum. Uh, that uh, Patrick Robinson returned like 50 yards for a touchdown weaving across the field. Uh, from that moment on, it seemed like Philly gained momentum and it didn't stop until the game ended. Uh, the Vikings took the first kickoff, went right down the field, 7 nothing, got a stop. Um, and then, you know, they were, you know, like I said, had like two plays into the drive and then Case Keenum throws his uh, pick six. And then from then on, the, the, Viking, uh, the Vikings just never recovered. Nick Foles and uh, – uh, the deep ball just jumped on them. So, um, Dwayne, uh, I don't think we call this outburst <laughs> from Nick Foles and Philly. I think a lot of people didn't see this coming in. I didn't see this coming in. You know, because we always say defense, you know, we rely on the defense. And the defense that showed up was the Philadelphia Eagles. And it was not something we expected. You know, I thought the Vikings would pull us off, bring it home, but, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles, hats off to them. They destroyed Minnesota. And I thought, you know, Nick Foles was going to be, you know, dismantled in this one, but he had one heck of a game. Every pass that he made was on point. It was, the defense was crisp. The defense had plenty of sacks, and I they rattled Case Keenum, and, you know, it, it was one of those things where, you know, you're kind of auditioning to be the quarterback of the team or the, in the future or 
or you're going to go back to Sam Bradford, or you're going to go back to Teddy Bridgewater. But I think one bad game doesn't really define the season that Minnesota had. It's going to leave a bitter taste in their mouth. You know, they were one game away from going back home, but now they got to see the team that destroyed them in their own building. So that's kind of a awkward kind of thing there. So, but with that being said, the Eagles, their defense flew all over the field. And, you know, this is a team that has been decimated by injuries all over the place, not just with Carson Wentz, but with Jason Peters and numerous other players. And this team just finds a way to keep on going. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the Patriots, really, if you really look at it. It's the next man up. You know, they did it without Gronk. And the Eagles are doing this without their top players. And, you know, they just put people in and, you know, everybody gets a formation and they start winning. Yeah, the uh, Vikings offense really uh, didn't do them any favors. Um, they kept stalling out. Uh, they had a couple of long – they had one long drive there that could have got them back in the game. They didn't kick the field goal, went for it on fourth down. They didn't convert. Um, and that was kind of really the last time that the game was actually really close. Um, you know, they just couldn't sustain anything. It looked like early on that, you know, um, Murray and um, – McKinnon were gonna really do the Eagles in. They were having a hard time um, stopping Murray from running outside, and then McKinnon was catching balls out of the backfield uh, on the outside. But uh, once the deficit got you know large, then and it became a drop back game. Uh, yeah, the Phillies defense is really keyed in on Case Keenum, harassed him a lot, and shut down that Vikings offense. So you know, shout out to the Eagles. Um, you know, they've been playing up this underdog thing uh, since the playoffs started. And uh, they've continued it right to the Super Bowl, where, again, they will be the underdog. So just a reminder, this is Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente. I'm joined by my co-host, the Libra icon, Dwayne. And we can be found right here every week on CSPN.us. So we'll get into our second topic involving the NFL, the coaching carousel. As more teams get eliminated from the playoffs, We get more offensive and defensive coordinators and coaches on teams getting selected to be head coaches of other teams. So I'll run down a quick list and then Dwayne kind of, you know, uh, mention something that stand out to you. We have Pat Shermer, the former Vikings offensive coordinator. He was named coach of the Giants. Pat Patricia, the uh, Patriots defensive coordinator, has been linked to the Detroit Lions. Matt Nagy, the former Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator, is the uh, new Chicago Bears head coach. Mike Vrabel, as we talked about last week, got named to be the Titans head coach. Josh McDaniels is rumored to be the Colts next next head coach. And Steve Wilkes, the former Panthers defensive coordinator, has been named the Arizona Cardinals next head coach. So, Dwayne, kind of, you know, which one of those hiring stands out to you and some intriguing um, coaching quarterback matchups here? Well, the Pat Sherman one stood out because – you know, it's kind of been, what are you going to do with Eli Manning? And they already said that Eli is the guy. So kind of wonder, do you bring in somebody else? Do you draft high and get a quarterback? Or do you go with a uh, running back uh, like Saquon Barkley to help that running game out with that number two pick? So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with with the uh, Giants there. That stood out to me when I first looked at the list. And Mike Vrabel, that was a surprise hire. You know, I thought the Titans would make a play for 
Josh McDaniels, but I think he's locked down with the Colts when the Patriots season ends on Sunday. Or just not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday. And of course, Matt Patricia, we kind of already knew he was going to be tapped for the Lions job after the Patriots season ends as well. Uh, but the Mike Vrabel hiring was a surprise, especially considering the Texas defense was really 32nd, but, you know, at the same time, they didn't have. They didn't have J.J. Watt. They didn't have Whitney Merciless. They had a lot of injuries on the defensive front. But you also got to wonder, you know, Romeo Cornell, who's also, you know, got Patriot ties as well, got demoted after he had the number one defense. And Mike Rabel, who had the 32nd rate defense, gets the job. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens there in Houston. or And then also – who's going to fill up the staff. It's really going to be who's going to bring in as the offensive coordinator because that was the whole reasoning for Mike Malarkey getting fired in Tennessee because he didn't want to get rid of Terry Rubisky, but the management did. So that pretty much stood out. And, you know, Steve Wilkes, great hire for the Cardinals. You know, I hate to see him leave Carolina, but it's always good to see, um, you know, player, you know, people from your team, you know, getting the top head coaching jobs elsewhere. And and um, the Panthers already got their defensive coordinator in place. Eric Washington was a linebacker's coach. He's already locked in as a replacement for Steve Wilkes. So uh, those were the things that stood out to me at the end of this whole carousel. All right, let me bring you in one more thing about the Panthers. They fired their offensive coordinator and their quarterbacks coach as well. So they're, I guess, going away from the Mike Shula, I guess, run-heavy cam scheme to the North Turner. Um, you know, Ernie Zampezi, Eric Coriel, you know, power running game, big shot passing game offense. Do you think this is going to work? Well, North Turner is a brilliant offensive coordinator, and it's going to be interesting for him because he's got a big quarterback who can run the ball. And I think he does want to make – I think he's going to make Cam more of a passer, and he's going to use um, McCaffrey in more of a slot receiver, more than a between-the-backs kind of guy. So you got to look at who's going to be um, backing up Jonathan Stewart if you bring Jonathan Stewart back, by the way. Uh, who's going to be backing him up at the running back spot. I like the hire because I do know that as long as North Turner is in the coordinator position, the teams do brilliantly. It's just when he becomes the head coach, that's where you got to question everything. But uh, I think the, I think it's going to be an interesting look. I was just going to see how many camps and OTAs and how they gel a training camp. That's really going to be what's going to determine how the season in 2018 is going to go. I'm looking forward to it as a fan, and I think I think it can work. You know, Ron Rivera knows North Turner. He was North Turner's defensive coordinator when they were in San Diego, and so it was kind of like a role reversal. I think they will be okay. I really do. Didn't North – wasn't he the offensive coordinator when the Vikings had Dante Culpepper or the Dolphins had Dante Culpepper? Didn't he coach him for like a season or two? I want to say he did. Let me. I want to say he did, yeah, and so. that you know that kind of does 
remind you of that situation with uh, Dante Culpepper. Um, and so this was one of those things where I think it's going to be another big quarterback who will be able to run and throw. Yeah, but the Panthers also need to draft a – they also need to draft a wide receiver because they don't have one. Uh, Devin Funches is a good wide receiver, but he's not, you know, a wide receiver where, you know, this can be, like, the guy. Um, and looking at Noah Turner's uh, career here, and he's been in Dallas, Washington, Oakland, San Francisco. I'm trying to see where he was a coordinator. And I thought he was a uh, Miami. It was Miami in 0203. That's right. Yeah, I thought it was either Miami or Minnesota. But I remember him coaching uh, Dante Culpepper. So that would be a good comparison to kind of see what Culpepper's stats were um, when North was coaching him. Because I think, uh, you know, uh, accuracy-wise, you know, uh, Culpepper and um, Cam kind of are similar. The deeper the passes are, the better they seem to be. Um, you know, and North Turner has a deeper passing game, um, than the Panthers have previously employed as far as basic routes and things. So, yeah, I I think that maybe this could work to his strengths where, you know, he could just rip the ball through the windows at 15, 17 yards away from him and not have to worry about the touch. Just can't his receivers hold on to it. Exactly. And I think, you know, you got Greg Olson, he'll be back and healthy, and then if they draft a receiver like uh, Calvin Ridley, maybe from Alabama, uh, who was on some mock drafts already, if you draft him, you might be in uh, pretty good shape. All right. So we're going to move on from the NFL, and we're going to get into some NBA headlines. Unfortunately, to start off the week, we had a firing as Jason Kidd became the latest casualty of this NBA season as he was fired as the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks due to his underachieving season. And it seems like he had some uh, issues with some players and some upper management folks in the Bucks. Uh, kind of the same thing that played out with the Nets as well. So it seems like, you know, Jason Kidd has a little you know, issue working with his fellow uh, employers. But uh, the Bucks are currently the A seed and um you know, right now, they'll probably be the most attractive job in the NBA once the offseason does uh, start next year and the coaching search officially begins. They're going to ride it out with one of their assistants being an interim coach, see if they can, you know, make a run and playoffs, uh, hold their position. So, you know, Dwayne kind of um, their star player wasn't happy with this. So that's always an issue when you do have a coaching change. You have a guy that's uh, in a market like Milwaukee that when he comes up for free agency is going to take all they can to keep him there. Um so, you know, how do you see this playing out for Milwaukee? And who would you think would be a good fit when they start their Christian search? Yeah, that's a good question on the last one. I'll answer the first one first. I think, you know, it it's, does uh, – it is pretty bad for Giannis um, in terms of Kumpo because, you know, he did get to – he did become a rising star under kid, you know, but I also think – with Jason Kidd's issues, mainly with Jabari Parker, I don't, I don't think he was really feeling Jabari Parker ever since they got there. Um, also, the power that Kidd was supposed to have had, he you know, he never received or he lost it when the GM got hired. So I think it's one of those things where it was not a fun time for for Jason, and also being it, you know, he wasn't in the glitz and glamour of 
New York with the Nets. He wasn't. He was pretty much hired because the one of the co-owners of the Bucks was his good friend. And now, you know, even though now the owners kind of made him less of an untouchable and allowed the GM to make any kind of decision, including coaching changes, they allowed him to pull the trigger on that change. So now it's kind of like who you bring in, I think it's going to be a good audition for their, for their assistant right now. I want to say it will be a kind of a interesting take to see if the Bucks can rise from that eighth spot because this is a good team. And, and if you really look at it, they still have a shot at the central with the Cleveland Cavaliers still struggling. So it's always interesting to see what is going to happen. You know, how do you respond to the coaching change? Uh, Joe Pronti has a lot of work to do. Um, and then also, who can you bring in if Prunty doesn't become the head coach for the rest of the season? It's going to be somebody you got to bring in like a player's coach. I don't know. I mean, you could say a guy like David Fisdale. Uh, you could say somebody like, I would say Scott Skiles, but I think Scott Skiles still have a job right now, so um, he may not, but. You know, you can look at somebody on the other team, on a on a team that's already um, on the bench right now. I don't know who would be. I think Skiles is the name that pops out to mind, but he did coach the Bucks already. But you know, you never know. You can always bring people back for a second stint, and just one of those things you have to wait and see for. All right. And some unfortunate news, Boogie Cousins will be out for the rest of the season after he ruptured his Achilles on Friday night after he posted a triple-double. Uh, this happened uh, early in the fourth quarter. Uh, very unfortunate. Uh, Boogie was named to his fifth All-Star team. He was the starter this year. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, one of the better players in the league, posting double-doubles. Him and Anthony Davis were really starting to click and getting this Twin Towers thing working. Uh, the Pelicans uh, blew out the Rockets in this game. Uh, Anthony Davis had a big game as well. They've got some better guard play. Pelicans definitely are up and coming in the West, um, and now they've got this big blow dealt to them. So this is going to change the dynamics of their team greatly, as now Anthony Davis is going to get that primary focus back on him uh, when teams uh, come in to match up against them. So I'm um, talking about the unfortunate injury for Boogie and then kind of the ripple effect this is going to have on the Pelicans who are starting to play some of their best basketball. It really does. It's really unfortunate. I, I was shocked as much as anybody else when this happened because – this was a guy who's had such a bad reputation and is not even warranted. And he's been doing the he's been doing everything to get to the playoffs for the first time in his career. He's had there's a contract here on top of that. He's done everything the right way and you know, everything was starting to gel between, like you said, him and Anthony Davis and then this injury occurs and, you know, it's a devastating blow for him. So that was a blow for the team, and you know, you know the Pelicans were really one of the. They really started coming. They took it in town, you know. I mean, it, you know, especially with the Saints all, in the off season, this team was really starting to get it together and pull it together. Now you gotta find somebody who's going to, you know, elevate their game a little bit more now with Anthony Davis. 
now being the focal point again. So teams are gonna converge down on him. So who's gonna who's gonna to pick it up? Is it going to be uh Holiday? Is it gonna be is it going to be um somebody because it's just really this is really something you have to uh it's not easy replacing a double double machine, a superstar and a and a and a guy who's just been you know, quiet in terms of just trying to get everything, you know, together and trying to show that, hey, he can hold it down. He can do, he can be one of the guys who just, you know, plays the game of basketball, doesn't make any waves in the news, just, he's just wanting to win. And that's all you want from somebody. He just wants to win. He's in a winning environment and this happens. So, Get well, DeMarcus. Get well, Boogie. Hopefully, you know, you get a, another one-year deal and you can you can uh, maximize that. Or who knows, maybe the Pelicans will sign an extension or you get a big contract elsewhere. But it just really is unfortunate that you had to go through this already. The thing about this particular injury, the Achilles for a basketball player, is it's pretty much a career-altering and, in most cases, a, a career-ending injury. Um, it's basically the injury that ended Kobe's career. It's the injury that ended uh, Dominic Wilkins' career. It's the injury that uh, ended um, Isaiah Thomas's career. It's really the injury, and he had it as a young person, that ended uh, Christian Leitner's NBA career for all intents and purposes. So uh, everybody who gets this particular injury, they are never the same. Um, You know, a couple of those guys were older off in their career, like Isaiah and uh, Dominique especially. But even for Christian Leitner, um, I know in his documentary, uh, he said, you know, they asked him why he wasn't an effective, you know, NBA player. And he said that, you know, he never could recover from blowing his Achilles out is he just never had the same explosiveness. And, you know, you're just so afraid that when you push off, it's going to go again. And, you know, he just said he, he just never could get over it. So hopefully, you know, Boogie can come back strong. You know, he's a below the rim player for, you know, all intents and purposes. Um, so maybe it'll be a little bit better um, in the future for him going forward. But, yeah, this is a really tough injury for a basketball player to recover from. Um, unfortunately, Dwayne, as we tried to talk them into last week on our show, they did not hold the um, selections of the all-star teams between Steph and LeBron on television. It was done, I guess, by conference call um, on, uh, I think it was last Thursday. Um, and it sucks. <laughs> so we just kind of got a, a generic press release that the teams were selected and uh, here are the lineups as follows. So team LeBron consists of Boogie Cousins, who will now be replaced by Paul George, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, LaMarcus Aldridge, Bradley Beal, Kevin Love, Victor Oladipo, Christoph Porzingis, John Wall, and Russell Westbrook. So Dwayne, what do you think about the team LeBron? I like to LeBron. I think it was smart for him to get uh, Kevin Durant, you know, get him away from, you know, Stephen Curry. I like the fact he chose Kyrie Irving. Uh, Kevin Love as well. Uh, Russell Westbrook and KD are reunited as teammates for a night. Uh, it's going to be pretty, pretty interesting. I think everybody on you look at the team on paper, it's pretty stacked. And I really do like uh, T. LeBron a lot. 
All right. So we'll move over to Team Steph, where he has Giannis Antetokounmpo, DeMar DeRozan, Joel Embiid, James Harden, Jimmy Butler, Draymond Green, Al Horford, Damian Lillard, Kyle Lowry, Clay Thompson, and Carl Anthony Towns. So what are your thoughts on Team Steph? Team Steph has a lot of hardworking players, so to speak. I mean, I mean, I think LeBron went the superstar route. I think Steph went with guys that play basketball, work hard. I mean, Draymond, Carl uh, Anthony Towns, a few other players on the team that, you know, when you look at the names, you're like, okay, they put the numbers in and they work pretty hard. So that's one thing that stood out to me. It's kind of like, well, the Flash, it's kind of like the Flash, you know, the flashy, attractive names versus the, you know, the names that are known, but, you know, they just put their nose more to the ground. You, you know, the more is like working hard versus just like um, star power names themselves. All right. Now, uh, we can't go an episode without talking about As the Cavs Turn. So apparently uh, there was uh, a, call, a team meeting where uh, Kevin Love seemed to be the focus this week as uh, there were some questions to whether he was legitimately ill when he removed himself from uh, the basketball game uh, last week. Uh, Isaiah Thomas apparently uh, was the one to call out Kevin Love in this instance. And it seems like, you know, he was getting that hot potato hot potatoing that blame off of him as the week before, you know, everybody was blaming IT and his poor defense for the reason that the Cavs were struggling. So as the Cavs turns this week also saw Dwayne Wade have to miss a game due to personal issues and family reasons. So Dwayne, what do you think about this week's episode? Um, You know, Isaiah Thomas of all people going after Kevin Love, you know, for removing himself, you know, like, Hey, you just got here, my friend, you haven't done anything to even warrant you speaking up in a meeting maybe of this extent. So what's going on with the cat? I don't know. It seems like a lot of drama in and out the organization. It's one of those things where, you know, the new guy trying to make the impact and probably should just stay in line and just kind of, you know, observe versus speak out. I know you want to make a difference, but you know, Kevin Love has been there longer. I'm sure he knows what's going on. And it's one of those things where, you know, everybody on this organization just needs to play basketball and not worry about what the other guy's doing on their team. Like, just bring it together. You know, it is it is January, but it's getting closer now to March. So we need to see what this team is going to do what this team is made of in the next uh, couple months because time is ticking. You know, we're getting towards the all-star break. We're getting towards the trade deadline. We're getting towards a lot of things right now. And if these guys don't get it together, you know, what's going to happen when when the playoffs come around? You know, are we going to see a monumental first-round exit of LeBron James, which has never happened? Or are they going to find a way to get it together, get it to the conference finals and or the Eastern Conference finals? And if you really look at it, too, the Cavs are only two and a half games ahead of the Central. Only, 
Indiana Pacers and three ahead of the Milwaukee Bucks. So it's one of those things where you got teams in this in this um, division and the conference right now who are like right there. So they really need to get to the grind and find a way to you know leapfrog Toronto and maybe Boston. All right, we'll finish up on some actual on-court stuff. As in the last week, uh, the Golden State Warriors had two marquee matchups as they went against the Houston Rockets uh, last weekend, last Saturday night. And then this Saturday night, they went against the Boston Celtics. They went one and one as they lost the Rockets on the road. And then they came back last night after a little slow start. And uh, the second half, they had a brilliant performance from Steph. Had like 49 points, I think, uh, last night against uh, Boston. Uh, Kyrie had like 35, 37, somewhere around there. So they had a nice little duel going back and forth. So um, basically, we got to see um, the Warriors up against probably their, if the Cavs are their biggest threat, the next two biggest threats, which are Houston in the West and then Boston coming out of the East if they have a chance to face them in the finals. Uh, What were your takeaways about what you saw from uh, these two uh, contenders against the Warriors head-to-head? I like the way the Warriors came out. You know, this weekend, they pretty much showed that um, against Boston that this could be a very, very entertaining NBA Finals. I think this is the team that will still come out the West after a seven-game fight with the Rockets. I think Golden State Houston will go, will go the distance, and then they'll find a way to uh, squeak out a series win over the Celtics in the finals, but this was a good series. And, you know, the Celtics have had the Warriors number, but keep in mind, it was also with um, a whole different team, practically. And and so, you know, the Rockets show that they can, you know, hang with the Warriors. You know, I want to see more of that. I really would like to see some games of that. So if Houston can find a way to take out Golden State, that would be something pretty special, but we also have to see if the Celtics, can they can they also not only get more out of everybody else when Kyrie's not playing or if Kyrie's on the bench, who's going to be that guy to score? I know Hayward was going to be that guy before he got hurt, but, it, you know, Al Horford, who is an all-star, he's got to do more in that scoring department, uh, Rozier, a lot of guys on the team will need to pick up some slack. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I think the Celtics are the best team in the East. I think they have a chance to go into the NBA Finals, and I think they'll have a nice matchup with Golden State. Okay. At this time, just want to remind you that this episode of Another Score is brought to you by Amazon. So please go to www.cspn.us, click on the banner that says keep the podcast free. Once you click on that, scroll down to click on Amazon. Buy that Valentine's Day gift, that birthday gift, or even that, you know, big screen TV you need for the Super Bowl coming up. Find anything you need in the world on Amazon. And if you go through cspn.us, you help keep all the podcasts here on the network free each and every week. So Amazon.com through CSPN.us, do it today. Dwayne, we're going to wrap up this episode, and we're going to talk about the Major League announcing their newest crop of Hall of Famers. So on his first time, Chipper Jones and Jim Tillman 
both receive first ballot Hall of Fame nominations. Rounding out the class are Vladimir Guerrero and Trevor Hoffman. So I heard some groaning, I guess, over Jim Tomei. So sound off. Well, it wasn't George who told me. It was more towards Chipper Jones. As a Mets fan, Chipper Jones. Oh, well, okay. There's bias there. Yeah. And Chipper Jones just was always, like, every single time he found a way to torture the Mets. And, you know, we even ended up naming his child Shea at the Shea Stadium because that's where he was at his best on the road at Shea Stadium. So, yeah, so no, no. Uh, on a on a good note, you know, you know, this is well deserved. Uh, he he was the first battle Hall of Famer, you know. Mets fandom aside, he was definitely one of the best in his prime, and you know, spending all his time in Atlanta as a Brave, and much respect to him. He's you know, I definitely, I definitely do appreciate his game and his contributions. Uh, did it the right way, and you know it's well deserved. Now, Jim Tomey, you know I was always a fan of Jim Tomey's, even after he went to the Philadelphia Phillies for a few seasons. But um, you know, this is a guy who knew how to just hit the hit the baseball, and it was always it was always fun to watch, especially during those Cleveland years when the Indians were uh, a, ma- a fixture in the postseason. Uh, when they played the Marlins and uh, when they played the Braves even, too, in 95. So um, Trevor Hoffman, game's best closer of all time. He deserves it. Shout out to Vladimir Guerrero. That was kind of one of my surprise picks. And, and uh, yeah, that's – so the grown was towards Chipper Joe's as a best fan, but I can put the fandom aside and and uh, and uh, congratulate him on his accomplishment. So – these are my baseball cards coming to life. So, like, uh, Chipper Jones is, like, probably one of the greatest card collecting times in between King Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez. It was, like, Chipper Jones. And, like, been knowing about him since he was, like, 16 years old and, you know, just knowing he was, like, the linchpin of the Braves resurgence and then him getting his first taste and it's probably going to, you know, come out of the box in spring training as an outfielder and tears his knee up. And everybody's like, oh, my goodness, you know, his career may be over. And uh, it might have been the best thing that ever happened to him because the Braves moved him to the infield, made him a third baseman, and he became one of the best third basemen of all time defensively. And as a switch hitter, was power. You know, he put up some of the best stats ever as a third baseman. So that led a lot to him. Um, that position change led a lot to him, you know, becoming an all-time great just because third base is a, it's a very hard position because you have to combine defense with you know, hitting, and that's a very rare combination to find in a lot of cases. Um, as a Mets fan, you should take pride in helping the man get to the Hall of Fame because, like you said, uh, those playoff series and, uh, you know, just those big games, just you remember Chipper Jones always coming through and plays against you guys. But, yeah, just a story. No, no <laughs> ever, no. It makes you sick. <laughs> story career, definitely, um, you know, for the Atlanta, like you said, um his whole career with the Atlanta Braves from the time he was a, a prospect to the time he became a Hall of Famer. So big up to him. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero, my personal, one of my personal favorite guys to watch from the days as a, you know, just young raw bone kid uh, coming off the island, um, you know, with the Expos, um, just throwing people out with that fantastic arm. 
people just being afraid to run on them, take extra bases. And then, um, you know, no batting gloves. And it didn't matter if it was from his shoe tops to his eyelids, he could put the bat on it. So um, Vladimir Guerrero definitely, um, you know, very, it's so fun to watch and so many great moments, especially defensively. Uh, Jim Tomei, um, as a guy who tried to play first base a little bit, um, he was one of the guys I looked up to. He was definitely um, very good defensively and, um, you know, the power, the power numbers. And, you know, in this age of voting for the Hall of Fame, the power numbers are definitely scrutinized um, more than they've ever been, you know, with the, you know, steroid era and the baseball writers holding their biases against guys that they figure um, were enhanced and, and got those power numbers with a little bit of aid. So a guy like Jim Tome, they see as doing his naturally. So, of course, um, with his impressive home run numbers, he would definitely uh, be a, you know, eventual Hall of Famer. But, you know, first ballot, so good for him. And, uh, you know, give some love to the closers, Trevor Hoffman, uh, probably the most important position in the game, really, that is definitely overlooked when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. But, uh, you know, the most saves in a career, uh, definitely uh, well-earned. A guy who was a starter, um, had some arm difficulties, and then transitioned into the bullpen and then became one of the best uh, to ever do it. So, you know, these four guys definitely a respectable um, class for the Hall of Fame. And uh, it'll be real cool to, you know, see them all get inducted together, see their plaques and, um, you know, hear their speeches and, and hear them thank the people who they, um, you know, help them get there. It doesn't do, you know, never get here by yourself. And you have, have to have a whole lot of people who believe in you and give you some opportunities that you maybe are not ready for. Um, but, you know, they see that you can handle it and then you, you know, live up to the promise. So, this is where it will eventually end up is in Cooperstown. So, Dwayne, at this point, I'll open it up to you, man, for your final thoughts, um, shout outs, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to speak on uh, this week on Notice School. Okay, final thoughts. Um, I have to say, my final thought is that it's kind of off the subject of sports, but, well, kind of, no, it is. It is on the subject of sports. I want to say, um, the XFL, the relaunch of the XFL um, in 2020. I have some initial res- reservations about it. You know, the whole, uh, the whole um, faster game. You know, now halftime. I think you kind of do need some kind of a halftime to get the strategies back on. I also think that. You know, the whole players with no criminal past, that's going to really kind of exclude possibly a lot of the players that may be interested. But I do like the idea of bringing it back, you know, especially, you know, after the Super Bowl kind of gets that football itch going. I I like the fact there's no crossovers and it's going to just be, you know, focus on the sport. But I also just think that it's smart of, you know, Vince to Vince McMahon to essentially take your time and getting every getting the right personnel, getting the right people to launch this league and getting the right people to, you know, market this league as well. So that is my final thought. I really hope that, you know, it isn't a money drain and I hope that there'll be more investors and see how it goes. Um, I have other thoughts, but I'm going to leave it at that. All right. My final thought will be a little more serious this week is just that, um, you know, Michigan state um, found itself 
uh, caught up in this Larry Nasser, U.S. Olympic um, sexual um, allegations and, and things as he got sentenced to a whole bunch of years. And he probably deserves a thousand more on top of it. But um, because he was employed uh, through them for, you know, as their one of their main trainers, um, a lot of uh, focus has turned to Michigan State and it's, uh, a new light has been shown again on these college programs and how uh, they don't really take these um, assaults and these uh, reports of abuse and rapes serious when it comes to their athletic programs. And, um, you know, we thought that, you know, Baylor would have been uh, a signal that these, you know, universities and, and programs need to tighten it up. But no, and now we've got this thing with Michigan State with all these athletes in there you know, basketball and football programs. And now, you know, people are going back and looking and seeing, oh, well, then this year there was four players from the basketball team charged and nine players from the football team charged. And, you know, and now it's starting to become very, very ugly. So, you know, another little, you know, warning to all these universities and colleges and, and you know, these athletes and administrators, like you guys need to take these um, reports very seriously and do your due diligence because, you know, it, it's Michigan State this time. It may be your favorite school soon. And, you know, you just never know. We're in a brand new climate. And, um, you know, people really need to be careful and really need to be proactive instead of trying to be reactive as far as these um, allegations and taking them serious and, and doing the proper things by these uh, female students. So that's my thought for this week. So for the Libra Icon, I'm Don DeLorente. And now you know the score.